0: Chapter Four, of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Matt Perrard. Chapter Four, In Silent Woods. Mystery is the keynote of the woodlands. When we enter them, the range of the eye is instantly shortened, deflected in a dozen ways from the pursuit of a direct object, the light set a-quiver by restless leaves, glances from tree-bowl to tree-bowl, destroying all sense of direction, and concealing the outlines of both animals and flowers by an of colored protection, so that it is quite possible to lose one's way in even a familiar bit of pathless woods. The forest juggles with the ear as well as with the eye. The wind in the upper branches causes the leaves to patter against each other like the first hurried drops of a shower while below all is airless suffocating then the pattering suddenly ceases and a ground breeze sweeps through the ferns that bend and sway but with an utter silence that is incomprehensible a branch cracks a hundred yards away it seems at the elbow you step on a dead twig and it gives out a percussion like the snapping of a distant trigger scarlet tanager utters his clear call apparently close above your head you seek but cannot see him for he may be either three or many rods away you grope about half a day for a desired flower and finally sitting upon the moss to rest in despair of finding it you discover that it surrounds you on every side in the woodlands one may always expect the unexpected and it usually happens it would also seem that a peculiar temperament in both animal and plant life is necessary to make the isolation from society sun and air endurable for by woodlands i do not mean the woody fringes that border meadows spring up under the protection of highway fences or thirstily follow the edge of a river but the forest as nearly primeval as we may find it in a heedlessly wood wasting region where legitimate felling of the mature tree or timber is too often followed by the destruction of the sapling for cordwood and of nearly all shrubby groves for kettle or pea brush, the untracked forest where the red-tail and the red-shouldered hawks still nest in company with a pair or two of great horned owls, where the oven bird pitches its tent on a prairie of ground pine, and the ruffed grouse scratches dry beech leaves together to nest her cream-brown eggs and at the same time help conceal them these untroubled woods are where no roadway nor bush cutting nor trampling to and fro has encouraged weedy underbrush or caused the deep black soil to wash away between the rocks where on moist plateaus catching rare sunlight on its pinkish sharply recurved petals the shooting star is found nothing much that can move seems to lack the very big wood for living in said time of year one day as he returned from the hemlock ridge axe on shoulder he was glancing at a stalk of blackening indian pipe which was the flower of the day in the buttonhole of his shirt though he protested at the wholesale uprooting of wild things he always wore a flower in shirt vest or coat as season and garment varied and when frost raised its finger a bit of aftermath winter berries, a witch hazel pod, a sprig of cedar, or of hemlock replace the flower. The cones and foxes that hole up in woods, he continued, sort of keep to the edges, and always go out field, or along the rivers to feed. Even the kind of hawks that set their nests in the tops of the big trees, and the little warbling birds in two kinds of thrushes that build low, seem in a hurry to be off when nesting and moltin's over. Take me now. I couldn't live away in the woods, but then again to live in em would be too solemn. Ye can't see what's coming, only what's been by and left tracks. As far as hunting goes that's fair enough, but for living it's right down discouraging. Ye've got to see ahead. For posies now it's different though there's heaps of wood-bred kinds that straggle out into clearance or maybe stay on when the woods air cleaned above em that seem to do first-rate but there's others that aren't the same unless you go up in the woods to see em maybe they would grow just as big or bigger even in door yards but they look homesick and strange after they're once pitched. something's gone from em if you want to learn wood posies you must do it in the woods you ought to have seen that pipe plant up yonder under the hemlocks, the same place that pink lady slippers grow in May. It looked just like snow comin' up through the ground and burstin' into flowers, but take it out of the sun, it's terrible dead to see. The lady slippers, too, were just like butterflies, a perchin' up there on the bank, but them that some of the hill folks yanked up and put in the garden looked like lumps of raw meat with flies a-buzzin round em. Take even laurel and dogwood. That's tough and hardy. Taint the same when they're all trimmed and platted out in beds in the open grass, even if they do grow. Time of year had the right of it, as usual. To transplant a wild flower without making a semblance of its haunt and its surroundings is to leave its attributes behind. Even those that thrive in cultivation, though they may gain in bodily vigor, lose the atmosphere that lent them charm and soon become the commercial plants of florists thus they take the first step on the road that leads parallel to the path to the hades of nature lovers the carpet garden once within whose gates those that have entered willingly and knowingly must abandon all hope of better things and yet the characteristics of wood plants are so marked that they will long survive the destruction of their haunts if they themselves are left untouched the surroundings may alter the sheltering trees disappear but so long as a footing remains or a drop of moisture to refresh them the wood things retain a native dignity to consider every flower and fern that may be found in shady ways on wood edges on half-cleared lands or following the water courses as they wind through forests Would be to catalogue more than half the native flowers that bloom from arbutus until witch hazel time. Yet the greater number of the landscape flowers of the New England woods may be gathered from four tribes the lily family, the dogwood, viburnum, and the heath. Though in the botanic world, for the reason of the great variety of forms it held, the heath family, has lately been divided into separate households when time of year brushed the dead leaves from the pink arbutus buds he opened the first page of this wonderful heath family register which never closes the whole of the round year for the pungent fruits of the checkerberry or wintergreen outlast the winter and often contrast their lusty redness with the snow of white hepaticus though these families enter the woods almost in company the lily and dogwood leading in landscape beauty the heath possessed both of shrubs with evergreen leaves and exquisite blossoms and also of many strange lowly growing plants transcends them all when in may flowering dogwood either as a shrub or a slender limbed flat branching tree flashes the dazzling white of its flower wrappings at us from between the trunks of tall trees whose leafage is quite up out of range it seems as if this luxuriant blossoming among the stern wood growths must be wrought by magic it is little to be wondered that indian lore took this flower as the flag of truce between frost and growth and that the red men hastened to plant their maize as soon as it unfurled before the breeze yet conspicuous as are these wrappings for the flowers themselves, make the small green central cluster. At a little distance, they too blend away mysteriously, appearing like mere spots of light among the other shadows. At this season, if the eye drops to the ground where it slopes onward and the undergrowth is herbaceous, rather than densely shrubby, it may see the lily family making its entrance clad also in purity where the clean leaves and graceful petals of the white wood trillium nod as they seem to bend and hurry down the slope crowding at the bottom as if some spring enchantment born of moisture and deeper soil were luring them there others of the tribe are blooming far and near bellworts are scattered all along the way in little gossiping groups Jungles of the leafy stalks of tall Solomon's seal conceal the humble nodding blossoms by the weight of leaves. Wild leeks are sending up their long flat blades, which disappear before the flower stalk comes. White hellebore is uncrumpling its wide leaves and shaking its greenish flower plumes in wet places from which the yellow adder's tongue is now fading. But it is the great white trillium that turns the bit of wood slope into a picture unpaintable save by the magician who alone can render detail without losing atmosphere almost every flower pose is taken by the tri blossoms which so white in their first opening flush as they mature until they often fade in rosy pink things wholly apart from wake robin their kindred of crimson petals and carrion odor after the trailing arbutus has gone and the pinkster flower too of what does the heath tribe boast useful offspring in the guise of blueberry huckleberry bilberry and dangleberry of high estate and low going through a score of species which fill the wood edges and openings in may and early june with fine sprays of small whitish bell-shaped blossoms that suggest the old-world heaths from which the tribe took its name the blossoms are mainly inconspicuous yet they count for much in masses and the berries are all edible either for man or bird the leaves of a tender green at first progress through many shades until in autumn they change to a rich leather red of the same color worn by the pepperidge and so carry the fire into the underbrush of the woods where it burns as brightly as the sumac flame on the bare hillsides. In late May and early June white still remains the flower-color of the wood, of shrubs and of smaller trees. The hobble-bush opens its cymes of florets, shaped much like a flattened garden snowball, and soon the maple-leaved arrowwood keeps it company though the latter, like many of the wortle and blueberries, is more noticeable in autumn from the peculiar shade of pink worn by its maple-like leaves. Meanwhile, close to the ground, the dwarf cornel, or bunchberry, is imitating the blossom of its cousin, the flowering dogwood, and holding its greenish-enveloped flower clusters above a whorl of leaves. This plant is also better known by the bright red knot of berries that follow than by the bloom itself. Many wood plants that blossom in the early season must be recognized by leaf or fruit, for people in general do not tramp the woods before late June, when the flowery carpet is turning to greens and other leaf tones. So it is with the fragile feathers of white baneberry its blooms have faded by June but the compound leaves and red-stemmed clusters of white berries are conspicuous until frost and serve as punctuation points to the eye in glancing over the vague masses of ferns and summer leafage. Wild Barilla also parts with its feathery white flower balls in June and its bristling seed pods, seeming at first glance like those of parsley, caraway, and dill, tells its name throughout the summer woods. Mediola more widely known as indian cucumber root at the fertile season when may blends with june raises a sort of two-story stalk sometimes two feet or more in height with a whorl of lily veined leaves in the middle and another at the summit supporting an umbrella of greenish-white flowers so transient are they in their blooming that the outer florets often wither before the central ones unfold, leaving the cluster of shining berries to tell the plant's name all summer, as they turn from light green through red to dark purple. As for Mediola's companion in damp woods, the slender stemmed trientalis, or starflower, cousin of loose stripes, it springs up, as if stretching to reach the light, throws out a wheel of leaves a few star-shaped pale flowers which so resemble the chickweeds as to win for it the local name of chickweed wintergreen and vanishes again having no tint of leaf flower or berry to win for it a place in the wood landscape now also the smooth sweet sicily with its much compounded leaves and flat clusters of fine white flowers like all the parsley tribe lures children to the woods to dig its pungent root dire mischief sometimes following for its companion in moist shady ground is often the deadly poison hemlock the two plants being quite alike to unaccustomed eyes and it is not until the flowers of sweet sicily give place to the strongly anise flavoured seeds that any one but a botanist can tamper with the roots in safety moccasin flowers and a rare orchis or two bring alien color to the wood carpet of dead leaves hemlock needles ground pines and soft mosses but orchids must flock alone and not be inventoried with less usual plants all this time tight wrapped in buds of last season's growth like many shrubs of both evergreen and falling leaf the mountain laurel and american rhododendron are preparing their bravery the one climbing the rocky steeps of the drier woods the other seeking moist glens and always keeping under high shade all the year the abrupt branches and persistent smooth green leaves of this laurel have relieved the monotony of gray rocks and tree trunks all summer the thick oval leaves act as foil to the juicier greens of ferns, and fragile wood plants. In autumn, as other foliage drops away, they stand revealed as evergreens, together with Christmas ferns, the creeping polypody, stiff red cedars, and the sweeping hemlocks. In winter, when snowdrifts fill the valleys and even the cedars are a rusty bronze, the laurel lifts its triumphant bay wreaths, high up on ravine sides above ice-bound rocks. In late spring, the old leaves droop a while and look dim and mottled in contrast with the fresh new shoots then soon the bushes hold up their bouquets of rose fluted buds that by the magician's jugglery in june spring open into quaint five-pointed umbrella tops with ten recurved stamens for spokes their ends well socketed as if to support the expanded flower remaining thus until shaken by an eager bee or the wind's jarring when the spokes spring back scattering the precious life dust for the seed's nourishment no flower of wood or field marsh or fertile waterway can surpass the beauty of the freshly opened laurel when it pinks and pales according to soil location and individuality through all the subtlest tints of flower-flesh. Yet no single flower cluster can give an idea of the laurel of the landscape, the laurel that wraps rough steeps in clouds of bloom, that, pale and wan, climbs up the sides of somber, sunless valleys until, reaching the summit and high air, it basks in open places, rosy as as if with its exertion, like the flowering dogwood it has a startling way of stretching out a branch of dazzling blossoms among deep shadows as if it were a sentient thing and knew that contrast heightened its transcendency peter Kalm, the swedish botanist when he first beheld the new world wilderness color de rose with this flower in reference to the small laurel wrote in his journal quote, its leaves stayed the winter the flowers are a real ornament to the woods they grow in bunches like crowns around the extremity of the stalk and make it look like a decorated pyramid of the mountain laurel he adds it was likewise in full blossom it rivals the preceding one in the beauty of its color we know that he took good report of it to linnaeus his master who named the genus after him for our shrub is no kin of the old-world laurel the name having been given to it for a likeness in the leaf as the mountain laurel drops its flowers and grows ragged for a time the wild rhododendron begins to show much the same delicate tints of rosy color but the throat of its wide five-cleft corolla is often sprinkled with varied golden spots the rhododendron's leathery leaf is double as long and thick as is the laurels the flower clusters and florets also roughly speaking are twice as large the laurel however blooms with more uniformity than its giant cousin and carries its flowers more boldly the rhododendron gains strength and symmetry when living untouched in a wooden glen where the branches twist and interlace to form impenetrable barriers, studded with perfectly formed bouquets of wax-like flowers, each cluster growing from a wheel of leaves. With the fading of laurel and rhododendron, the upper color of the deep wood vanishes. But on the lighter edges and river banks, we meet white once more in Clethra and Swamp Azalea, both of the old heath tribe. Then we must lower the eye to Mother Earth again, as in the spring days of adder's tongue hepatica anemone and yellow violet days of june and young july woods from which the spring chill has passed a bed of moss and silence take no books the stillness is too absorbing and profound for reading go close to the earth and smell its spiciness rest the body and travel with the mind focus the eye on the undergrowth with which the foot is the more often familiar. Seek out mimic landscapes of a country where stately brakes and royal ferns are trees, various wintergreens are shrubs, the various mosses, grass, crumbling stumps and lichen branches, ruined castles, and squirrel, lizard, white footed mouse, and whippoorwill the inhabitants. It is airless in the deep summer woods, at once cool and oppressive. You push back your hair from a damp forehead. And think of the open places, the glen where time o year's waterway rushes through a cool breeze always following in its wake, and you wonder why you did not follow the banks where, from time to time you could at least dip your hands or a handkerchief in cool water. The restless push of spring has passed. you no longer fear that some long-sought flower picture of the season's moving panorama will slip by unseen. The white flower-balls of the four-leaved milkweed, close at hand, whisper of the sun-hot fields where live its sturdy kin, where even now summer is holding its flower-dance in open revelry, the magician lending all the colors of his palette for the costuming. Then the wind comes backwards to the wood, and for a time the eye leaves the search for broad effects and turns toward detail. For the summer woods, one must have human companionship, else the silence is too oppressive. The stiffening tension of bodily inactivity on the vibrant nerves is too great. A woman may go happily on the flower quest in Byway Lane, through open fields or along the waterways, if she numbers a woman friend, a dog, or a patient horse among her intimates. But for the silent woods, man is woman's needful complement. May there be no paths to cut and gullies to cross and even snakes to be killed. And it was not the feminine half of mankind who was told to bruise the serpent's head with her heel. Lovers, yes, courting days are in touch with the silence of wood rambles. But for the flower side of the quest, married lovers are best. Their vision has a far wider range. They have the tranquility that heightens memory and they go and come from a mutual home follow the pathways of nature in less fitful and feverish mood than those who say good night at the gate all the ground odor does not come from the earth itself as you gaze dreamily at the infinite shadings of the moss small round leaves separate themselves from it following a threading vine hither and thither until the mossy cushion merges into a leafy bank dotted here and there by waxy red berries in passing the hand over the leaves new shoots will turn back and show the velvety tubed throat and the tiny cross-shaped flowers of the partridge vine another wood plant that holds its fruitage through the winter small as the flower is its fragrance is exquisite being a refinement of the same quality of perfume which we find in clethra, lizard's tail buttonbush, and swamp azalea to pull a handful from the mass is but to find a straggling vine that almost depends for identity upon its unity with its haunt but seeing where it covers the ground with green red-white it must be counted with the decorative flowers of the mimic landscapes of deep woods a bluish color, novel at all times in the woods, draws the eye to a partly open space where, clustered in the hollows between tree roots, there remain some belated tufts of low-flowering flocks. The first thought is of wonder that a plant escaped from gardens should have chosen so lonely and inhospitable a lodging, but memory comes presently to aid the eye and names the flower wild blue flocks of the same tribe as both the wild sweet william of more southerly moist woods and the creeping moss pink of dry or rocky soil rosettes of smooth round leaves follow each other from under a beech tree in the straggling procession suggestive of tap roots while groups with larger leaves support straight flower stems hung with scalloped bell shaped florets which give the perfume at once sweet and aromatic that is peculiar to the round-leaved pyrola, shin-leaf or wintergreen still called by tom o year wild lily of the valley yes i know it ain't a lily he said one day when i half laughing referred him to his study book but it's just the same to me as if it was and that's the name she called it not that i'd wish to spread an error but just between me and her and it that posy'll allus be wild lily of the valley i wonder whether the day will come when the old man will tell me of the dead wife whom he designates as her and about the boy of thirty years ago and why he himself left the farm to live a hermit in the roadside cabin if he does i well know that the story will be told when he has raised his finger warningly whispered come and see, and led me to the cherished haunt of some flower that she knew under a homespun name. The soft, dry beech leaves, crumbling to rich mold, end in a sort of fairy ring of frail young maidenhair, and hemlock sheddings cover the ground where plants of a strange form stretch up scaly, flesh-like spikes, crowned by a few loosely clustered flowers. The newly opened blossoms are yellowish, the mature violet pink but except for the four petal flowers the plant seems a fungus growth yet a faint odor steals from it to identify the flower though it is half a parasite as the false beech drops of the old heath tribe and half brother to the taller ice-white indian pipe surely the indian pipe itself is a plant to conjure with and ghost flower is the most fitting of its many names what thought had the magician when he planned its evolution was he dreaming still of the autumn frost flowers born at dawn from frozen sap and a sun-kiss or was he seeking to incarnate a fantastic icicle in the flower world silent even among voiceless ways stand the indian pipes unbendable and grouped like statues they do not respond to the touch of the low ground breezes that turn the hedging ferns rudely about leaving them in a mute flutter long after the wind has ceased at the touch of man the flesh of this flower of translucent whiteness blackens but untroubled it will linger in its home going through various changes from a drooping to an erect flower with tints toward pinkish purple for a month or even two and i have sometimes in november after a hard frost found its then really icy stalks yonder white under the hemlock shade the stalks shoot up six inches or more before they reveal the flower that caps them in shape it is a reversed pipe bowl here among the ferns on the beech copses open edge though under high shade the flower buds barely pierce the ground before relaxing though afterward the stem attains a greater length such faint odor as the flower has is crude and chemical as of something in a transition state not yet to be determined. There is one day in the July woods, which, to me at least, is not like other days. This day is when we go to the river woods to find the mottled-leaved pipsissewa or spotted wintergreen, in its perfect bloom under the great chestnut tree. Not that it is a flower of a day, by any means, for it stays the month out in southern New England, it also gives good notice of the coming of its season by the whitening of the globe-shaped flower buds hanging suspended above the sharp toothed dark green leaves which show light marblings above and a dull mauve undertint the trailing underground stem sending out both leaf and flower branches being unseen makes every group appear to have a separate existence but the hand that seeks to transplant them works sad mischief the haunt where we go yearly to meet this flower is on a hillside there giant chestnuts touch branches and the foot sinks in soft moss and ground pine and the trailing christmas green sets snares to trip the heedless. the place is a sort of sleep knoll bounded by river and a wandering bit of marsh which few have crossed save sportsmen and the random seeker for strayed cattle Bog-moss floors half the pathway over the low ground, mingled with shining club-mosses, sweet-flag, and burr reeds. Then comes a space of damp, sand-covered stones, once a brook-bed and now concealed by creeping scale-moss, or selaginella. and on the moist, shady bank above, the long, graceful white-flower spikes of black cohosh make a feathery thicket, through which we push to gain the knoll, trampling starry campion on every side. Once within this boundary, the deeply compound leaves and long flower pinnacles of spikenard make us pause a moment in admiration. This plant sometimes vigorously holds its blossoms up to the very chin, as if to bid us examine their minute beauty, though the wine-colored fruit that follows classes it with those frequent wood things better known by berry than by flower. Here too, but little above a foot in height, the rare ginseng has sometimes lodged, spreading its leaves in shape somewhat like the horse chestnuts, beneath the yellowish flowers that also play second fiddle to the later bright red berries. A few steps more and the goal is reached. pipsi everywhere. Occasionally the flowery trail is of the green-leaved kind called princess pine, each plant rising a perfect mimic tree, but bearing smaller flowers than the spotted wintergreen, its brother. Down on my knees I go, as when time o' year led me to the arbutus bank, for these two wood flowers are kin. On my knees, yes, and farther down, quite flat, until the flowers of recurved flesh white petals and pink stamens, ranged like the setting to a central green seed-globe, are on a level with my eyes, and their fugitive perfume is mingled with the odor of crushed leaves and moss. In Pipsisua, lover of winter is the name's interpretation, culminates what might be called the leaf-mold flowers of the woodland season, those that, keeping close to Mother Earth, brighten winter barrenness with their cheerful evergreen leaves and by their flowering distil the leaf decay of autumn into spring and summer fragrance pipsisiwa is a picture flower in the little landscape of wood undergrowth and yet it is one of the few blossoms of its class that may be picked and taken home without loss of quality only i beg of you Cut the tree-like flower branches above the ground instead of pulling them, which uproots and wastes the trailing stem beneath. Place your bouquet, which groups itself with flowers above and foliage underneath, in a green glass bowl of water, holding the stems in place with tufts of shaded mosses, and you will find that you have brought sufficient of Pipsissiva's haunt with it to justify the picking. But do not try to dig the plant up for the chances are that you will discover, when it is too late, that you have despoiled the woods of beauty only to obtain a mass of rootless plant stems. The later season has its wood flowers, but none are so dear and intimate as those that bloom from April to middle July. After this the surprises are in the shape of fern fantasies. In midsummer days it is the fern that lures us to the wood path and into the moist glades, where already Jack in the pulpit has thrown off his hood and is wearing a cap of stout green berries. Once again in August, the woods glow with a yellow, richer than any seen there since Marsh Miracle time. But in late summer, this color has left the low wet shade and come up to the dry oak woods, where leaf mold is compacted into blackened loam, and the undergrowth is of laurel blueberries brakes, and slender wood sunflowers in such haunts the straight leafy stalks of smooth yellow false foxglove the branches all turned upward rise four five and often six feet the wide lipped tube shaped flowers two inches in length smooth outside but velvety within make golden wands of the stalk top and branches the color creeping up and outward as the buds unfold the old name of this plant was oak-leaved gerardia from gerard of herbal fame and from its leaf form it seems a fitting name as the flower is dependent upon certain organic matter for maintenance and seems to find a satisfactory supply of this in oak woods false foxglove grows in time year's woods also and along the glen road below the lilac house but to see it in its glory one must follow the river down past its mingling with the salt then thread sunflower lane and take the narrow track made by hay wagons across the salt meadows to wakeman's island are there oak woods on the beach crest is your thought i know yes for the sea has eaten its way backward year by year and century by century until fresh and salt water meet and mingle where once were only dry woods fresh ponds and a river glen well knows the way to this oak-crowned crest which at the high tides of fall and spring is an island even in late summer it is reached at low water only by a soggy strip of road full of deep gullies made by the wagons carrying the heavy loads of damp salt grass back to the upland meadows for drying when we last went on that road nell and i rose mallows lined it sunflowers almost closed above our heads Hyacinth beans climbed over the alder bushes, and the lovely purple gerardia bloomed in the ridges between the wheel-tracks. Then Mistress Nell wore a mosquito-blanket and green boughs in her harness, and her mistress, in turn, was decked with an asparagus-bush upon her head that should have made the haymakers, if they knew enough, which they did not, think that Burnham Wood, had missed dunsinane and was wandering through a connecticut marsh the haymakers only paused and wondered perhaps why a female not financially interested in salt hay should come that way when low august tides leave the marsh tract a freehold to the breeding mosquito swarms and truly crossing that marsh road is for both man and beast to withstand the attack of a million flying warriors whose swords are needles but once over and safe within the oak shade the eye refocused from the glare of the noon sun the picture repaid for all a wheel track road between low banks was edged with giant brakes and golden wands of the yellow gerardias beneath the oaks a glow was spread among deepest shadows as if the sunbeams sifting through the leaves were made prisoners where they lodged upon the undergrowth over and through this color as a background lay the marshes with a thin covering of water here and there the spaces between the pools blue with sea lavender another landscape flower to swell the list of the unpaintable another blossom of a day too frail to pick unless as i did you shake the opened florets off and trust to the opening of tomorrow's buds for your reward not since the days when the green outer walls of the lilac house hung with flowers had i heard such bee droning and insect music as around these gerardias i thought to take a picture of a group that circled an oak trunk to piece out the memory of it in winter days but when the sea breeze ceased every flower bell seemed shaken from within by hungry diners and disappointed newcomers went from flower to flower failing to find even standing room then at last for three brief seconds wind and bees were quiet in unison, so was another cell of flower memory filled, and one more picture added to my photo herbarium. End of chapter 4